Hello, and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. On this episode, the Lady Justices discuss the role of each state's Chief Justice. Chief Justice Loretta Rush of Indiana and Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor of Ohio join the program to discuss how Chief Justices are selected, their roles in the courts, and the history and impact of women serving as Chief Justices. Oh, it's like, it's probably 60% administrative and 60% um, decisional. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court. This is Rhonda Wood, and I am a justice on the Arkansas Supreme Court, and I'm joined as always by my friends and fellow Lady Justices, Bridget McCormick, Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and Beth Walker, Justice of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. Today is truly special because we are also joined by two other Lady Justices, Maureen O'Connor, Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, and Loretta Rush, Chief Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court. These two justices are incredibly accomplished and well-respected by their peers nationally. Welcome, Marina Loretta, and thank you for joining us. Notably, Bridget, Marine, and Loretta all serve as Chief Justices of their respective state Supreme Courts, and of course, Beth served as Chief Justice of her Supreme Court. Therefore, I am taking the opportunity as host of this episode to have what I believe will be the first podcast interview with four women who are or have served as chief justices about their experiences. 41 of our 50 states have had a woman chief justice. Lorna Lockwood was the first woman to serve as chief justice of a state Supreme Court, and she was elected to the Arizona Supreme Court and served two terms as Chief Justice in 1965 and in 1970. I believe, um, and, and you all may correct me if I have the number wrong, um, feel, so feel free, but I think there are currently 18 um, women Chief Justices, um, but that could have changed um, and um, in the United States currently. And one of the things we do for on this podcast is we discuss the various ways that each state justice system is a little bit different. So let's begin with how each of our states select who serves as chief justice. And I'll ask each of you to also let um, everyone know how you um, how long you've served in this role. So in Arkansas, the chief justice is one of the seven positions on the court that is elected by the people in a nonpartisan election. The seat is up for election. Any qualified candidate can run for that position, including a current justice. And it is for an eight-year term, just like all the other positions. So Beth, um, how does West Virginia select its chief justice? Well, uh, hello, Rhonda, and hello, Bridget, and our wonderful guests. Um, I'm so excited for this podcast and everyone being here in West Virginia. Um, like every state, we do things a little differently. We elect our five justices to our Supreme Court, which is called the Supreme Court of Appeals, uh, for 12-year terms. And then among the five of us, uh, according to the Constitution, we determine who is the chief. The long tradition of our court although it's not written in a policy or a constitution or a statute or a rule, is for our chief justice to serve a one-year term. And so we rotate our chief justice and I served as chief justice first in 2019. 
And uh, I will believe I believe I will serve in as Chief Justice again in probably just a couple of years. So um, we alternate among uh, all five of us. Maureen, how about Ohio? Ohio is an elected judiciary. Uh, we have uh, six-year terms. Uh, all judges are elected, whether it's the municipal judge, which is our lowest court, all the way up to the chief justice. Again, all six-year uh, six terms. Uh, the Supreme Court is elected statewide, uh, and um, so too is the chief justice. It is a designated uh, position in which I am elected by all of the um, uh, well, the majority, I should say, of the voters uh, in the state. Although in 2016, I received all of the votes because I didn't have an opponent. <laughs> so I got, um, I got all of the uh, votes that year. Uh, I've been on the court as Chief Justice. My election was 2010. Prior to that, I was uh, an Associate Justice, having served on the court uh, first in 2003. Uh, and um, the Chief Justice obviously has a variety of administrative responsibilities that are unique to the position, uh, but just like any one of the other six justices on the court, uh, my vote carries no more weight on a case than the other justices' votes. Uh, interestingly, when I first came on the court in 2003, it was the first time ever there was a female majority on the Supreme Court of Ohio, and since that time, for the majority of those years, there has been a, a female majority, and currently there is a female majority on the court. In Michigan, well, first of all, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. And this is a really fun conversation for me to have. Um, Maureen O'Connor was designated as my mentor when I first became a chief, and I couldn't be any luckier, and maybe because they thought I needed extra help, I feel like Loretta kind of stepped in and kind of co-mentored me. So this is a, a, a very fun conversation. Um, in, um, in, in Michigan, we select, um, the court itself selects the chief from among the seven justices who are like, uh, like the rest of you elected statewide uh, for eight-year terms in Michigan instead of um, six or what did you say, 12 in West Virginia. That's long-term, that's pretty good. Um, and we serve a two-year term renewable for two more, um, unless, uh, unless the seven justices think you shouldn't be renewed. So I am in my second two-year term, um, year three, and I would like to make a motion to West Virginia to have their chiefs serve for more than one year while I'm here. Um, <laughs> it seems like you need more than that. Um, how about Indiana, Loretta? Thank you, and thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed, once I heard about this podcast, I've listened, so I feel like I've gotten to know you, Rhonda, better. I think I've met Beth, and um, of course, I know Marina Bridget. So Indiana's different. Um, we have, it's so follow the Missouri model. To pick chief justice, we have a judicial nominating commission, and that's chaired by the chief. And on it, the governor has three appointees that are non-lawyers, and all the lawyers in the state vote on three. So you've got seven people that determine the chief. It's five-year terms. Uh, Randy Shepard was actually chief for 25 years. And then we had Brent Dixon who was chief for two years and then I became chief. So I, I started in the court in 2012 and about 18 months later, our chiefs stepped down and you know, he said, you're, you're in, you're all in unless you take your name out. So everybody on the court, there's five of us, we all applied, went through an interview process. Um, and then they announced um, that I was chief. So. 
it was something because I was so new on it. So I had five years. I've been appointed for second five years. I have three more years to go. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it seems to work. We, we have to run every 10 years only on a retention ballot. You're appointed a justice by the governor. Again, that same judicial nominating commission um, that I chair sets, you know, when you're chairing something and you're also up for it, you leave the room. So I left the room, they all talked, came back, uh, it, it was appointed. So next year we've got a justice retiring. Um, and we also have court appeals judge retiring. So same process with the same judicial nominating commission. That's why the attorneys are pretty engaged to pick the three attorneys that are on it. And the governor, again, that, that's probably the most partisan part is the fact that it's three. Our justices themselves, we don't, are, we present three names from the judicial, judicial nominating commission. We give those to the governor and the governor appoints the justice, but not the chief justice. Thank you. That's um, I might, Rhonda, could I add something? Yeah, no, please. Uh, just this year, uh, there was a decision by the legislature to put the party designation on the ballot for the appellate court and the Supreme Court, but not for the lower court of, of common pleas um, and the municipal court. Uh, the rationale was that people need to know more about the judges they're voting for, okay? Well, if, if that truly was the rationale, considering most people deal with the common pleas court and the municipal court, and those are the vast majority of our judges in the state, you would think that the R and the D would have been attached to their names when you consider there's 68 uh, or 67 maybe uh, uh, appellate judges and then seven Supreme Court. So anyway, this is the first time uh, in uh, 2022 that the designation will be on the general ballot, uh, an R or a D behind the names of the uh, contestants. That's, that's really interesting. There was actually a movement in Arkansas. I think the legislature considered that as a potential uh, submission to amend our constitution, but it, it failed. But it was, it was similar to what, what you had mentioned. Um, so um, given that we talk a lot about women on this podcast, um, and I want to talk about since we um, and go around and compare how many women have served as Chief Justice in our respective states. Um, so Maureen, I'm going to go back to you. And um, were you the first Chief Justice in Ohio or have there been others? I am the first female Chief Justice in Ohio. It only took us 207 years, I believe, to uh, uh, have a woman elected uh, to the position. I. Um, in my elections to the court, I've always had a man opponent. Again, we go <clears throat> head to head for elections <clears throat> and uh, the chief justice's position is no different. Um, so uh, yeah, I am the first woman. Well, um, Michigan is coming in hot to answer this question. We have more women, have had more women chief justices than any other state in the country. With six, I am the sixth um, woman to lead this court. Uh, Mary Coleman in 1979, Dorothy Riley in 1987, Betty Weaver in 1999, Maura Corrigan in 2001, Marilyn Kelly in 2009, and now me. So top that, Loretta. I can't, but I know that I know some of those women, and you're right of their ilk, Bridget. Uh, Indiana is at the 
other end of the spectrum, <laughs> the first woman chief justice and the only the second woman on our court ever. We in we had a woman, Myra Selby. She served from 1994 to 1999. And in 2012, when this position became open, we all had a collective, this is not okay. We were one of two or three states in the country that didn't have a woman. So probably 75% of the people that applied were women. But then the final three names that went to the governor, I was the only woman. So we're always looking um, to promote that. And I, I'm, I'm glad that that was, the, that was the whole story. She's the one, it's the woman. Now I'm glad that's done and I wanna become like Michigan. So um, what next? So Beth, how do they do it in West Virginia? So in um, West Virginia, since everybody gets to be chief, basically, at some point or another, we have had three women on our Supreme Court. And so three women have been um, chief justice, which I guess uh, is nowhere near as accomplished as Michigan, but maybe slightly ahead of, uh, of other states. Um, when I was, of course, we had Margaret Workman, who was the first woman uh, elected to statewide office in the late 80s, and she rotated through as chief a number of times. Robin Davis uh, was the second, and then me. And when I arrived at the court, going to the point Maureen made, we had a majority of women. There were three women. Um, and through a variety of twists and turns since then, I am now the only woman on the court. And uh, we talk about this occasionally and it is, uh, it is not my preference. So I look forward to uh, more women hopefully joining me uh, on the Supreme Court and joining me as uh, chief. Well, um, Bridget, way to be a show off um, in Michigan. Um, but uh, so Arkansas is um, very, very sad. Uh, so we, have never elected a female chief justice. Um, we had, we are straight up elections, but we had one point um, in 2004 where there was a temporary vacancy and um, Governor Huckabee at the time appointed uh, a chief female chief, um, but just for a very short term and to fill that slot. And in Arkansas, if, if that happens, the appointee cannot run for the position. Um, and so she, Betty Dickey was there really short term and then left. Um, and you only run till the sit till the very next, you know, election possible. So um, Arkansas does not have the history um, that all of you, um, even though we have a, had had a majority female court since 2015, we are lacking in the chief justice role. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit um, about, you know, Maureen mentioned the differences about the administrative side. And I, I'm really curious, um, since I'm sitting here um, with the four of you as chief justices, is what amount of your time um, is spent on the administrative role as chief justice compared to the decision making um, time um, and cases? So, um, Bridget, I'll start with you. I can't wait to hear everybody else's answer to this question. I feel like we should have talked about it before, but I think it's quite variable throughout the year because there are periods where our decision-making work is quieter. We have, uh, in August, we don't conference. We're considering incoming applications, but we're not conferencing and our opinions are all out. So there's uh, a lot more time for administrative work. So I think in August and February is somewhat similar. Um, my administrative time is, I don't know, 75, 80%. Um, on the other hand, uh, when we're in the middle of an, a week where we're hearing oral arguments, it's um, it's it's quite minimal. Um, it 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 gets shoved into the early morning hours and the late night hours, um, and I have to rely on 
my talented administrative team to uh, figure things out. Um, so those weeks, it's 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 quite minimal. But overall, it's a significant amount of time. Um, there's just uh, in a in a state system, the the chief role because we have administrative oversight of all the courts of the state um, is a is a very time consuming job. It's um, um, I think a really impactful and important one, but it but it's a, it, it takes up a significant amount of time. Um, Loretta, I wish you had gone first, but what's it like for you? Oh, it's like it's probably sixty percent administrative and sixty percent um, decisional. Uh, it's you know I'm here in my chambers. It's the Indiana State House. The Senate is about ten feet that way. Governor's office is right below. Um, during times where the budget rests on you during COVID. I mean, how many hours were we all working on COVID? We're not a unified court system, which means that all 92 counties have, would have their own continuation of operation plan. So I do a lot of my um, decisional work like early in the morning, you know, taking it home at night and Saturdays. I, I'm really trying not to do anything on Sunday. I think if you become chief, you just need to know that you're going to have to put those, um, put those hours in because you don't know today what the crisis is going to be tomorrow. It could be some bad behavior of judges. Justice Walker and I have talked about that um, in Indiana. It could be some lawyer disciplinary case. It could be a mandate or original action. And it, you know, everything comes on a Friday afternoon. I don't know about the rest of the ladies on the call, but it doesn't seem like all the original nasty original actions get filed late on Friday. So, I mean, I love writing. So we all probably write the same amount or I write as many or more opinions um, on average. I, I love the writing part of the job, but I need to do it in quiet. Sometimes it's not, I don't get the quiet I get here to get it done. So um, it's a lot, it's a lot of hours. And then let's see, okay. And Maureen, what's it like in Ohio? The uh, amount of administrative work, I'd say, is at least 50% of what the job entails. Um, it does have a, uh, a waning period when the legislature goes on break, uh, as they do. Uh, we, uh, there, there's initiatives that, uh, that I propose, and I um, usually propose those as a result of a task force that I have uh, created, and there's recommendations that come in a very lengthy report from each one of these task forces, um, and uh, the recommendations are not just for the judiciary, they're for the legislature, uh, you know, to, to take up. So sometimes I, you know, am championing uh, those uh, type of uh, recommendations with the legislature, I have a uh, legislative liaison, uh, an attorney that works with the legislature and, and keeps abreast of all the different, you know, uh, introductions of legislation. We talk about that uh, every Monday afternoon is consumed with uh, a, um, a meeting with my administrative director, general counsel, et cetera, legislative liaison, uh, et cetera. So um, that's that's a given. That's that's the standard on you know, for just Monday afternoons taking up doing that sort of stuff. And that's just kind of a, a catch up and a strategy uh, plan that I, you know, or, or a time. Uh, and then, um, you know, throughout the week, there's conversations with each one of those uh, people. I probably, well, I know I talk to the administrative director on a daily basis. Uh, there's also a discussion on a national level, not just on a state level with uh, items that are in the offing. Um, certainly, 
uh, you know, each one of my colleagues will uh, take note of this because they've had various interactions with uh, their federal um, uh, legislative, uh, you know, legislatures uh, to talk about um, access to federal dollars. That's an important part of, uh, you know, what the judiciary does is ask for money uh, for uh, initiatives. Uh, we're no different in Ohio. Uh, fortunately, the legislature has been somewhat responsive, anywhere from uh, uh, increases in uh, salaries for judges. You know, in at, at one point, I was able to negotiate an increase for the judiciary, a sizable one, 20% uh, over four years, which was pretty, uh, it, and it was the first time we had an increase in, in how many years. So that, that was a pretty big deal, but that took a lot of negotiation between the legislature and the governor's office. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you'd be, but you know what, it, the things that I, I talk about and, and, and deal with administratively are kind of a fraction of what we could be doing. It's just that there's some things that we're asked to do by people in Ohio, by groups, by, you know, that, that are fully inappropriate. Um, and there's other things that there's just so many hours in the day and uh, regrettably you have to prioritize um, and manage your time and also manage your relationships in a way that you know what's gonna you know, work, what's gonna sell and, and, and what's not. Uh, and so that's important too. Um, so, I, and I think that it's always, you know, a necessary imperative that you keep a relationship with the other two branches of government in a way that you can set up a meeting, um, get a response, you know, we've got, you know, governor's, uh, you know, cell phone on your cell phone, so you can, you know, make those kind of calls, and he can to me and does. So, um, and those are usually in crises uh, times, and, um, you know, I'm not going to talk about the, the challenge of COVID, we're not a unified state in Ohio, so I don't have the luxury of, of unification when it comes to those kind of decisions. Um, but overall, uh, you know, I'll give a nod to my administrative staff as well. They're phenomenal. Um, subject matter, uh, initiative, you name it, um, they carry the day. Well, Beth, what about you? Well, I think my friends have done a wonderful job um, ex highlighting some of the really important jobs that um, chief justices do. And, and just to put a little bit more detail on a couple of those concepts, um, all of them mentioned, of course, their administrative leaders or administrative office or administrative directors. Uh, and you know, like in the other states, West Virginia has an administrative director and we are a unified court system. So in our state, of course, we're not as large as others, but we have 1,500 people who work in the court system. And if you think about that, that's, you know, a, the administration of that uh, organization is a pretty large employer. And while the administrative team takes the lead in the day-to-day, -day, the chief justice is always involved in, you know, major issues that come up, you know, day-to-day -day things, crises, as Maureen said, you know, and, and an important you know, balance that the Chief Justice does. Um, and I would agree with the 60% administrative and 60% decisional for uh, a total over 100% that Loretta mentioned, um, is when do you get the other justices involved? Because, you know, each chief only has one vote and the, and the, the ultimate decision-making is by the court, which is, you know, in West Virginia, the five of us. 
Um, so it's, you know, troubleshooting. There's a lot of behind the scenes sort of mundane things that happen every day that a chief, you know, might take an hour. It might take uh, two hours every day or every other day to, to do some basic tasks. But you really are the public face of the court um, with regard to the, the other branches, the legislative and the executive branches. And, um, you know, you're kind of a first responder as well, because if something comes up, it, it'll start with the chief and then the chief determines generally, uh, does the administrative team handle it? Do I need to talk to the other justices? Um, so it's a, it's a lot. Um, I'm very grateful that in my years, chief, I also had the opportunity to be mentored by Maureen. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot with uh, just, just hearing her and Loretta and Bridget talk about uh, how they do their jobs. It's pretty inspiring. So I want to know, we've talked about a little bit of um, sort of some of the challenges that you've had as, you know, in the administrative side, but I want to know, since I haven't had the pleasure, is what is your favorite um, sort of part about being Chief Justice in your experiences? So I'm going to start with Loretta. Um, what can you tell me? Oh, there's a lot. I still wake up in the morning. I'm in my eighth year as chief, going, I can't believe I'm chief justice. So, I mean, it's, it's still, it, it's an amazing opportunity. And there's so many, I mean, the friends that I've met, um, I've learned so much. You have such an opportunity as a chief justice to work with other states. I have stolen things from Michigan, from Iowa, I mean, from Ohio. So you find out what's working, you can bring those things back. So it does give you kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening um, nationally. I think you as a chief can set the tone and tempo um, for your state, for the court. You can set the tone with regard to, you, you've got to practice, people are watching you all the time with regard to, you, you want to promote civility, then you need to act that. The tempo is, the law has been traditionally, it's a bit of a barge with regard to change, um, but you can set the tempo. Some things can't wait. I mean, when we looked at pretrial reform came along, our jail populations used to be just 25% of people there were uh, in our pretrial, now it's 75. It's based on wealth. So no, we can't wait 10 years. You know, in Indiana, we have one of 10 children, one of eight 10 children who have an incarcerated parent. So you can say, okay, we're gonna speed this up. I was with Maureen um, with regard to task force, get, the, get your big thinkers together, um, get, your, get your big thinkers together and come up with a plan. And again, you can share the National Center for State Courts has been a great resource. Um, also education, what do you wanna train your judges on? The science of addiction, believe it or not, uh, the judicial branch is the number one referral source to get people to treatment, whether it's substance abuse or mental health. Are your judges trained on that? So that's setting that tone. How are we going to treat addictions and mental health, not as moral failures, but as treatable diseases? So there's, I think there's a wonderful opportunity with regard to change. Maureen led a, a national task force on fees and fines. It was very eye-opening. She gave us all a simple bench card that we were able to push down. Um, to some judges, it was pushing. Some were just grabbing it down. So I think for reform, and I think the judiciary right now, uh, Chief Justice McCormick wrote a great article about judges, you got to get out, why you got to get out from behind the bench and be part of your, be part of the solutions in your community. So being at the helm in your state at this time in history, I think is really important. Um, Beth, talk to me about West Virginia. 
Well, um, in my one year as chief in 2019, um, I think my favorite part was the incredible opportunity I had to um, begin to chart our way in a different direction as a court. The, um, the entire court had been impeached the preceding year. Um, there was a very toxic culture at the court um, when I arrived in 2017. And so fast forward, um, you know, I had only been on the court a couple of years and I found myself as chief justice and we had a lot of work to do. We had to restore public confidence in the integrity of our court system, which sounds sort of lofty, but it was a very real crisis of public confidence that we had in West Virginia. And I got the opportunity to lead the five of us in figuring out how to do that. When I took over as chief, we had three brand new justices, um, which is a lot on a court. That's a big change. And um, we worked together, although I got to be the chief, um, to start to change that culture and to very thoughtfully and deliberately and strategically um, do things differently, you know, um, increasing accountability, increasing transparency, um, doing things that the court had never done before in terms of having policies. And, you know, it was a whirlwind year. And, and by the end, we had made real progress. So my favorite part, although it was probably the hardest part, I'll have a different answer for that. But uh, my favorite part is just the, uh, you know, the ability to make a dramatic change uh, when change was absolutely needed. So that was my favorite part. Maureen, what is your favorite part of being Chief Justice? Uh, my favorite part is the bully pulpit of the job that you can make you know, change uh, happen. Uh, you can help educate uh, you know, uh, members of the judiciary, members of the public, certainly the legislature um, about uh, the role of judges and initiatives that we need, <clears throat> bail reform being one of them that came out of my task force and we've changed uh, rules. Right now we've got a proposed legislation that is going through the process in the legislature that is going to um, uh, make statutory what we've made uh, in our rules, which I'm happy about because I think there's more stability in statutes than there are in court rules, which fluctuate with the makeup of the court. Um, so uh, those are things that I think are, are uh, rewarding uh, and, um, you know, I think that uh, encouraging judges to take an active role, step out from behind the bench, as, as Bridget, uh, you know, said in her article uh, in um, the Yale Law Review, um, you know, the hard part, the hardest part, I think, is to kind of go against the concept that was promoted by Chief Justice Roberts in his confirmation hearings that we are only there for balls and strikes, you know, to call balls and strikes. Um, I don't agree that that is the role of the judiciary. Um, I think if that is the role of the judiciary, uh, we are really squandering opportunities uh, to make a difference, make a difference in society, not just in, you know, the case law. That, you know, that's, that's one compartment that I look at. Um, and yes, you follow the constitution, yes, you interpret the statutes and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we all do that, but there's so much more you can do with the bully pulpit and the, uh, uh, the initiatives that you identify and people identify and ask your help on. Uh, and when you step up, um, you know, in an active way, because you do have a certain Nash, I don't know what it comes with the with the uh, with the job and people listen. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, 
they listen out of respect, you know, for the position, hopefully out of respect for me. Um, but they do listen and they will come together and we can work on solutions. As Loretta said, we're big thinkers uh, and come up with some great ideas and some great programs. Um, and there are things that uh, you know, we can utilize to educate the judiciary and get the 700 and uh, you know, 22 judges in Ohio uh, moving in the right direction. Well, I think my friends have all um, already said what I would say, which is I think the best part of the job is the ability to um, have a have an impact on on the people who live in Michigan. I, you know, um, this I, I, the, the courts impact so many people. Michigan's courts decide between three and four million cases a year, and that's a lot of people. You know, we only have ten million people in the state. So when you think about the number of people who are impacted by something that ha that goes on in our courts, it's it's a very high number. I mean, more people interact directly with our branch of government than the other two by a lot, by an enormous factor. And as the nonpartisan branch, we have a real opportunity to, um, I, in my view, focus on things that improve people's lives um, without getting kind of caught up in some of the partisan rancor, especially of this particular moment. Um, I feel like we have this wide open lane to cut through and and, uh, and, 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 and serve people who need it. You know, most people come to court not because things are going great, right? There are a couple of exceptions to that. Sometimes we get to marry people real quick, that's fun. Sometimes there are adoptions, but usually people are coming to court because something um, has not gone well. And uh, the ability to figure out how to, to, to help courts support people in their hardest moments is an honor and a privilege. And um, if you if you can bring people together, um, all kinds of stakeholders, you can have a tremendous impact on, on so many people. So that is far and away um, uh, the best part of the job to me. So I'm going to shift gears on you. And um, I feel like we've talked a lot about the role of um, chief justices. And um, what I wanna talk about is that um, in Marina Loretta, we have talked a lot on this podcast about um, women being making up majority of law school population, but not sort of staying in the practice and is particularly staying in firms and um, traditional practice, and they're leaving it in large numbers. And so one thing I wanted to know is if, if in what piece of advice, because we find that particularly listening to this podcast, we have a lot of young women lawyers in their late 20s, early 30s that listen to us. But what advice of encouragement um, would you give to that 20, 30-year-old female lawyer that right now may be in feeling a little overwhelmed with the practice of law? Um, what would you tell them? So I'll start with you, Loretta. I think first off to be kind to yourself. I think, you know, we think back on our 20, 30-year-old selves, it's all we had to keep be kind to yourself. Um, I think it's quality as opposed to quantity with regard to the work that you're doing. Um, and, and to just be present in the moment, be present with your family. When people say, oh, I didn't get, to, you know, I've I, I got 2,400 billable hours this year. I said, well, that's not, I'm not gonna pat you on the back for that. <laughs> you know, what was at what expense? So I think that um, you've got to be good to yourself to be good to others. And 
You don't need to lose a 10 pounds. You don't have to have the, make the homemade cookies for the bake sale. I picked up plenty on my way um, to dropping off at school. So I think that the, the idea of stop piling on things I need to be, I need to be doing and just put yourself in the moment. Um, and, and I think that will help. I wish that somebody would have told me that um, back in the day because it, it will all work out. So I think it's um, Bridget's next. We talk about this a, a, a lot and I, I, I think that's great advice, Loretta, give yourself a break. Um, I, I think right now that for, the, for those of you who are out there trying to figure out if you're gonna stick with it or do something else, please, please, please stick with it is what I wanna say because I think a lot is shifting right now. A lot is changing right now in our profession more so than any other time in, in my career. And um, I think we're all kind of realizing that just because we've always done something one way doesn't make it incredibly stupid. Um, you can do things different ways. And we learned a lot of that um, in the last 18 months when we had to. And it's opened up conversations about um, the model of practice, the business of law, access to justice, the way um, courts function that are big conversations, important conversations. And I think the voices we need in those conversations are the ones that are most dissatisfied with the status quo. I want those voices loud and clear in these conversations as we move forward. So, um, so show up and say what you really think. I was talking to my, I, I have a, a son who's 24 and is going to go to medical school in the fall and he's, he's already gotten in. So he's working right now for a couple of different jobs in New York City. And he said um, it, he feels really, really great just saying what he thinks to his employers because he knows he's going to medical school in the fall. So if they fire him, he doesn't really care. But I kind of want all lawyers to act this way now too. just say what you really think. Um, now is the time for us to hear your ideas about doing things differently. The fact that we're, we've done it the way we have for a long time is not because is not is not best based on you know data that shows that that's the only way to do it. In fact, we just made it all up and have been doing it that way ever since. So we can try something else. So, Maureen, uh, well, I'm an example of a non-traditional uh, lawyer from the get-go. I didn't work for a firm. I I started uh, practicing. Uh, um, out of a home office, uh, when I graduated from law school, I had uh, a 14 month old and I gave birth to my second child the day after I graduated. So um, you know, I had two babies, I guess, in law school, you'd say. Um, so I, I really didn't have an interest in going into a law firm. Um, and uh, so I, you know, started I started to practice and, and it worked out and, and uh, one thing led to another. And um, I found my niche in public service. Uh, and uh, that's where I think that a lot of people could find a niche and could be very comfortable uh, in that niche. Uh, you know, we're all elected officials, we're all public servants. Uh, you know, I was, um, you know, first magistrate after about four years in practice. I uh, became a magistrate in the probate court system. Uh, then I went on to be a common pleas court judge, and then the prosecuting attorney in my county, um, and then lieutenant governor, and then on the Supreme Court. So um, I had no desire to uh, you know, worry about billable hours or do any of the other things that I think that 
uh, women, young women and young men attorneys, um, you know, feel compelled to be challenged with. And, and so there's alternatives. I think there's a million different ways to use your law degree. Don't think that you have to sit in a cubicle in a big firm and wait for your turn to get a bigger cubicle. Uh, and, you know, um, and you do that by, I don't know how, but, but it, it, so there's, there's entrepreneurial opportunities, there's public service, there's striking, you know, your opportunities are only limited by your imagination. And so talk to people about other opportunities other than the big firm mentality. Um, and quite frankly, the big firm mentality, the, the opportunities in big firms are shrinking. Uh, you know, every day, and you're you're not so you have to by necessity think outside the box. So do that. There's plenty of opportunities. There's plenty of information. There's plenty of groups you can talk with. There's plenty of mentors that you can seek out. Uh, people that have used your law, their law degrees in a very satisfying yet very non-traditional role, uh, and um, that might be something. It probably would be something. Uh, that you could find a career in and be a very satisfying career uh, with the use of your law degree. Beth, what do you think? I think that being the fourth person to answer this question is really hard. Um, and I might appeal my place on this um, question because um, you just heard three amazing answers um, to this question to, you know, to uh, giving advice. So I'll go a little different direction. Um, and say very simply, find your people. Um, you know, we have unfortunately through this pandemic, and sometimes the practice of law itself is isolating, but don't let yourself get isolated. Don't let yourself feel like you're the only one doing what you're doing because you are not. Um, there are other women out there, um, whether you're a mom, whether you're not a mom, whether you're, you know, billing 300 hours in a month or whether you're trying to figure out how to, um, you know, manage your life as a public defender, whatever you're doing, um, find the people who are doing what you're doing and talk about it. Um, one of the coolest things about this podcast is that I get to talk to my friends, Rhonda and Bridget regularly um, about what we do and it is helpful to me. And so I would say to you, if you are feeling a little overwhelmed, um, find your people, talk to, talk about it. If you can change where you are, change where you are. If you can find a better place to be, go there. Um, but you are not uh, ever alone, uh, in this practice. Now, those are, um, great answers. Um, and if you notice Beth, I didn't give myself room for an answer because I knew that, um, the rock stars and all of you would, um, you know, knock it out of the park. So, um, all of you are just so inspiring and amazing. Um, not just to all the young women out there and men, but, um, to me particularly. So, um, just awe-inspiring. Um, and I'm so blessed, um, to have, you know, especially some of you as close friends. So, um, I appreciate that more than you know. Um, but Loretta and Maureen, what we do at the end of every podcast is we do this lightning round. Um, and it allows um, our listeners um, and even us to get to know each other better. And so we give really short answers um, to some questions. Um, so we will go alphabetically if we can try to get that right. We don't always. Um, 
um, so it'll go Beth, Bridget, Loretta, Marine, and then me. So the first question is, um, if you if we can remember, which I had trouble after I wrote the question, is if the first record, um, which is, you know, for the listeners that don't even know what that is, you know, I'm talking about the, you know, <laughs> traditional record that you owned. Um, so Beth. Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits. Carol King, Tapestry. Mine was Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Uh, Rolling Stones. Mine was Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Iowa, you know, there we go. All right, um, favorite holiday? Christmas. I, for me, it's Thanksgiving. I, I, I like Christmas feels like pressure. I can never figure out what to get anybody. I like Thanksgiving. I like all of them. <laughs> uh, I'll go with Thanksgiving. Uh, okay. Preferred holiday. So I'm Thanksgiving too, but I'm all about the food. Um, yeah, just about the food. Okay, so tea or coffee for your caffeine? Tea, tea always. I mean, coffee, don't be gross. <laughs> coffee. Uh, I do both, I, but I very, very limited coffee. Usually if I'm going to have, well, I am going to have a coffee is one little Nespresso uh, a couple times a week, but most of the time it's tea. Okay. Oh, I'm tea. Sorry, Bridget. You're, I think you're mm -hmm. outnumbered. <laughs> All right. Favorite descent, Bridget. Yeah. Favorite. <laughs> fa yeah. We know what to get you for Christmas. Favorite dessert. This one's really hard. Um, but I'm going to say carrot cake. Interesting. I love all my desserts equally, like my children, um, except any des dessert that is gelatinous. That's gross. Um, anything with caramel and chocolate in it? Okay, so Bridget, you don't like jello? Is that it? No, that's disgusting. And so is even flan or like anything that's like got that, that gross jello-y feel that you're not going to like what i like which is panna cotta yeah i love uh panna cotta um uh, but you know there, there's a, a lot that could have made that list uh, <laughs> that's, that's that was very difficult to come up with so beth i'm carrot cake as well but um bridget do you do you do cream brulee or is that too jello like gross no wrong texture. oh my word no. Okay, all right. How about so, mousse? Does mousse, mousse mousse bad also? No, thank you. Oh Great. my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So um this is the other one. Sometimes we do these writing words. So pled or pleaded guilty. Pleaded, please. Uh pled, of course. Pled. I didn't even know pleaded was a word. Right. Oh, pleaded. So I'm, Beth, we're, we're outnumbered on this one, but okay. Well, again, thank you all for joining and listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. We'll be back with another episode soon. And until then, you can always find us on Twitter and everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, and find links to our social media, visit LadyJusticePod.com. 
There, you can also record a voice message with a question or comment. The opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Until next time.